Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In the last chapter, we saw Paul addressing both the insiders and the outsiders in the church at Corinth. The members of the church were the focus in verses 1 to 11, but then in verses 12 to 18, Paul is clearly focused on the outsiders, the false teachers trying to infiltrate the congregation and cut them off from Paul's influence and authority. Here in chapter 12, we observe a similar dynamic. Paul is directly addressing the Corinthian congregation. But it is clear that he is also somewhat obliquely addressing these invaders. Of course, we have to remember that in all likelihood, this letter would have been read aloud in a public gathering of the congregation. And so these false teachers would have almost certainly been sitting there as part of the congregation. Paul knew that. And so while he never addresses them directly, it is clear that he is talking to them while appearing to be talking about them. You'll hear lots of they's and them's and these and those in this chapter. And each time you do, you are hearing Paul's judgment upon these so-called apostles. So who are these people? Over the next two chapters, we will learn a fair bit about them based on the content of what is often called the fool's speech, in which Paul, in a highly rhetorical manner, says essentially, they've given you their resume? Well, let me give you mine. But then, contrary to expectations, he doesn't give the credentials we would expect, but rather speaks of his many frailties and his frequent sufferings, and how the grace and power of Jesus have been demonstrated in and through these things. It is a very unusual and highly ironic speech. However, by paying attention to what Paul emphasizes, we can make some pretty informed guesses about the identity of those people who were opposing and undermining him in Corinth. They were obviously Hebrews. In verse 22, Paul says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And then, given the emphasis on power versus weakness, and the fact that Paul refuses to take any money from the Corinthians, despite that he has no problem taking money from other churches, and in fact elsewhere will argue in general that gospel workers should be paid, but the fact that he won't take money here in Corinth suggests that these false apostles were charlatans and hucksters. They were the ancient equivalents of the modern-day televangelists. We think, for example, of Peter Popoff, who presented himself as a faith healer and who milked countless thousands of people out of their hard-earned money, and who was eventually exposed by James Randi as a fraud back in 1986. Randi attended one of Popoff's gatherings wearing a radio scanner, And he was able to detect and record Popoff receiving radio signals from his wife via a hidden earpiece. She was telling him, there's a lady with a sore back sitting in seat 5C. Or, there's a man with a wonky shoulder sitting in seat 19A by the aisle. And of course, anyone with a serious illness like cancer or diabetes was shunted off to the side. Popoff would then appear to hear a word from the Lord. The Lord is saying that there's a brother here tonight sitting near the aisle about halfway back who has faith to be healed from a shoulder ailment. 
The entire thing was a carnival act and was exposed as such on national television. There have always been people like that. Christians, by and large, are, are generous, kind-hearted people who have faith and who believe in a God who does great things and who loves us and who wants to, to intervene and, and, and make things better. And therefore, Christians are highly susceptible to deceitful people who are willing to exploit those beliefs and instincts in order to make a buck. There were people like that operating in Judaism even before they began to infiltrate the Christian church. Jesus spoke about them in Mark 12, 38 to 40. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation, closed quote. So there have always been people who see in the believing community an opportunity for power, prestige, position, and profit. And that seems to be the sort of person Paul was dealing with here in Corinth. Paul Barnett says, In our view, it points to a preaching of Jesus the Nazarene, whose historic Jewish persona was being emphasized at the expense of his risen lordship by the newly arrived Hebrew missioners in Corinth. Close quote. Mark Seifert adds, Paul's adversaries in Corinth shared a common praxis that stood in the sharpest contradiction to the proclamation of the crucified Jesus and the word of the cross. They regarded the power of Christ as being revealed in power, particularly their own gifts and powers, and not in weakness and suffering. Close quote. He goes on to say, Paul charges his opponents with merely pretending to be apostles in order to take advantage of the Corinthians. Close quote. So putting that all together, it would seem that Paul's opponents in Corinth were Jewish teachers who emphasized Jesus' Jewishness and who resisted the sort of openness and freeness that was expressed by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They de-emphasized the cross and put a premium on signs and wonders, and they demanded that they would be highly honored and well-paid for their expert leadership. And for whatever reason, the Corinthians were attracted to that. Jewish teachers have a certain mystique about them, and signs and wonders can be more interesting than long, deep sermons and theological exposition. And then, of course, there's a very human tendency to value things that cost us something, monetarily speaking. So these false teachers were actually making significant inroads within the Corinthian congregation. And here in these final chapters, Paul begins to take aim at them. And he does so here in chapters 11 and 12 by means of what is often called the fool's speech. As I've already said, it is a highly rhetorical speech, dripping with irony, in which Paul plays the fool, as it were. Is it resume time? Are, are we giving our credentials? Then let's do. But what he says was not what they expected to hear. So let's get into it. There's a bit of an introduction before the speech begins in earnest in verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In these opening verses, Paul compares himself to a father who has betrothed his daughter to her future husband. The Tyndale New Testament commentary provides some helpful background here. It says, 
Marriage among the Jews of Paul's day involved two separate ceremonies, the betrothal and the nuptial ceremony, which consummated the marriage. Usually a year elapsed between the two. But during that period, the girl was regarded legally as the man's wife, while socially she remained a virgin. The betrothal contract was binding and could be broken only by death or a formal written divorce. Unfaithfulness or violation of a betrothed girl was regarded as adultery and punishable as such. Close quote. So this is a two-step process. Step one is you make the pledge. And then step two is you show up at the church on time wearing a white dress. And Paul is living between those two points. And he's trying to make sure that the Corinthians follow through on their initial intentions. And the danger here is the seducing influence of the false apostles. They're like the serpent whispering in Eve's ear in the Garden of Eden. They would seek to lead them down the garden path. They would seek to lure them onto the rocks. Choose your metaphor. So these are not voices that they should be listening to. These are voices that are actually seeking their harm and destruction. That's the point Paul is making. Verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things." Here, Paul is expressing a certain amount of surprise or chagrin that the Corinthians are so open to other voices, given their initial pledge of love and loyalty to Jesus. Why are you going out on dates with other young men when you are already engaged to be married to another? That's the basic idea here. And, and the question implies that these false teachers are not just rival Christian leaders. They're preaching a whole different Jesus. So this is not Paul, you know, being tribalistic. This is not him being unwilling to share the limelight with other leaders. No, this is Paul saying that these men are not working for the real Jesus. They're preaching another Jesus, a, a no-cross, a, a for-profit Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Christ of Scripture. So you shouldn't be listening to them. Now, in verses 5 and 6, Paul begins to address the concerns that these false teachers have raised about him. They've suggested that Paul is unskilled in rhetoric, and Paul concedes that. But he says, I am not inferior in knowledge. Paul hasn't put a lot of effort into flash and presentation. He has preached Christ and Christ crucified. He's a substance man, not a sizzle man. And intentionally so, he wants the focus to be on Jesus, not on him as spokesman for Jesus. Now, in verse 7, he begins to address another concern that has been raised. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? <laughs> God knows I do. 
So again, Paul wasn't opposed to receiving support from churches. In fact, he mentions receiving support from other churches while working in Corinth. He says that his needs were supplied by folks in Macedonia. However, to combat the influence of those false teachers who were trying to exploit them, who were preaching a for-profit Jesus, he has chosen not to receive any support from the Corinthians. He wanted it to be crystal clear that he was not after their money. He was after their hearts. And of course, there's a lesson here. Sometimes for the sake of the gospel, we must all be willing to lay aside certain rights and entitlements. We must be willing to receive less than we have a claim to. We must be willing to forego certain things. We would be within our rights to demand. That's what it means to walk in the way of the cross. As such, Paul was perfectly happy to support himself in Corinth by means of his trade as a leather worker or tent maker. That's not the most efficient way of doing church planting, but given the distortions introduced by these competing influences, Paul deemed it necessary. And far from being beneath his dignity as an apostle, nothing could be further from the truth. It only showed his love for them and his commitment to the spread of the gospel. Verse 12, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here in these verses, the gloves come off. Paul's subtlety and rhetoric fall away, and he speaks in very straightforward terms. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. I don't know how Paul could have been any more clear here. He says they're frauds, liars, and deceivers, and you should have nothing to do with them. And of course, we must remember that Jesus said we would have to be constantly on guard against the incursion of false teachers and false prophets. He said in Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, the fact that they're going to come to us in sheep's clothing means, of course, they're going to present themselves to us as authentic born-again Christians. The fact that they're ravenous wolves means that they're going to come to us in order to exploit and destroy. Now, interestingly, Jesus says here that we're going to recognize them by their fruits. We tend to think that we're going to recognize false teachers and false prophets by their theology. But if they're any good at deception, then of course they're going to know how to say the right things. They're going to learn their lines. They're going to memorize the Christian playbook. They, they are, they're going to know what each of the letters in TULIP stands for. They're going to be able to parrot all the lines from the catechism. They're going to know their theology better than you do. But it will all be a lie. And therefore, the only way to spot a false prophet is to examine the fruit. The churches that let them in will soon be ravaged and scattered. Look for that. Look for chaos. Look for abused sheep. Look for division. Look for harassment and exploitation. Look for leaders who demand absolute obedience, excessive deference, and, of course, a very healthy paycheck. Those are the hallmarks of the false prophets across the ages. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Verse 16. 
I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. So here's the introduction to the fool's speech proper. Again, it's highly rhetorical. Paul is saying, if it must be resume time, if we're going to have a showdown at the credential corral, then let's get at it. Here we go, beginning at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, the fool speech is generally understood to continue on through to chapter 12, verse 10, but we'll just deal with what we have of it here. Again, as Barrett says, it is probable that this speech mirrors, but so as to parody and also correct, the claims of the newly arrived false apostles, close quote. So this is a reverse resume, as it were. Paul's essential point is that it is inappropriate, actually, for a leader in the cause of Christ to be speaking of power and triumph and success. What do such things have in common with the Christ of the cross? A minister of the true gospel will be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So let's talk about that. I've been beaten, abused, slandered, harassed, harangued, impoverished, and imprisoned. That's my resume. I have borne in my body the marks of Christ. Now, of course, as Bible readers, we can't help but try and connect the things that Paul refers to here with things that are mentioned elsewhere, particularly in the book of Acts. We can do that quite easily with most of the events and experiences he mentions. But what about the five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one mentioned in verse 24? Historian John Pollock says here, writing in A.D. 56, he mentions being punished no less than five times by the Jewish 40 stripes save one. Yet none of this is recorded in Acts. Thus, it is probable that he was whipped more than once in the hidden years at Tarsus, 
Scourging was regarded as the correction of a brother, purging his offense that he might resume a place in the family of the synagogue, closed quote. So that must have happened in the gap between Acts 9.30 and Acts 11.25, a gap that takes us about three minutes to read, but that represents almost a decade of actual time. During that time, Paul was back in Tarsus, and he was obviously preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in his local synagogue and paying a significant price for so doing. Now, in verse 25, he mentions that three times he was beaten with rods. That refers to the Roman method of civic punishment. Now, we only have one example of that in Acts, Acts 16, 22 to 24. So what about the other two? Well, obviously, we don't know. Every author is selective in the stories that he decides to tell. So obviously, Luke didn't feel the need to mention each and every hardship experienced by Paul. But there were clearly a lot of them. Indeed, reading this list, we are reminded of what the Lord said to Ananias when Paul was first converted and recruited back in Acts 9.16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Indeed, the list is long, and as mentioned, it is counterintuitive. I love how the New International Commentary summarizes this surprising rhetorical presentation. It says here, If Christ is seen most definitively in his suffering on the cross, then his minister is seen most definitively in foolish weakness, not in power. Quote. That seems to be exactly the point that Paul is laboring to make here. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 